This week on the podcast, we are joined by former Royal Marine Commando, turned outdoor brand photographer and expedition guide, Ian Finch. Ian has been traveling to remote environments for over 10 years now and has some hardcore trips, including a 2,000-mile canoe descent down the Yukon River in Alaska. While there, he met some of the locals and natives, and he captured it in his photography. We also chat about his 1,300-mile journey retracing the footsteps of the Cherokee's removal in the Trail of Tears, as well as his journey into becoming an outdoor brand photographer. Enjoy this week's discussion with Mr. Finch. Salut. Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast. So a 2,000-mile canoe descent down the Yukon River in Alaska. Where did you get the inspiration for this trip? Yeah, it, it's twofold, really. Um, that I had my sort of like upbringing to sort of thank for it and um, or as even a catalyst for it. And then my sort of my love of, of uh, outdoors and adventure. So the, the family side of it was I, I grew up in a, in a household where my father was very much um, interested in sort of indigenous history um, and all manner of things like that and photography and, and those side of things. So I grew up with that sort of just sort of bubbling under the surface. Um, and then there was my, my love of adventure and being outdoors and the, the Yukon, the trip really for the idea for it, the expedition came from me really just looking at a map and think, right, I want to go away for a long period of time, like two, three months. Um, I would love to canoe a river. So at that point I'd had very limited experience canoeing, but I really, I'd fallen in love with the idea of canoeing. Um, and also going in search of a much longest, um, trip that I could interview and speak to people along over a long sort of period of time and really get to the nuts and bolts of who the people were that lived along the side of the river. Um, so I kind of, I, I had a few places in mind in Canada and, um, but when I looked at the map and then I looked at the length of the Yukon, then I sort of started to really look into the history of the Yukon and the people that, um, arrived in that area and now lived there. There was a lot of, a lot of moving parts, a lot of interests there. So, um, I decided to, to to canoe the length of that river and put together a couple of people to join me, a photographer and a, a long distance paddlist and um, and, a, and a filmmaker. Yeah. And, and I just really sort of sat and thought about it for a while and then thought, right, I'm going to, this is, this is going to be the one. And um, I, I sort of went about preparing for it, saving, planning um, and quitting the jobs that I had at the time to go on the trip, which was a bit of a, bit of a crazy move, but it, it paid off in the end. Um, but yeah, it was, it was well worth it. Yeah. Speaking of preparation for such a quite, um, quite long journey and adventure, what was your preparation? Like, what did you need to bring with you? How much money did you need to save up and what time frame were you planning for this adventure? So the, the time frame was anything within that three month period, because being from the UK, that's all I can spend in the U S um, even though actually at, at the first part of the trip we were in Canada and then crossing the border um, in, in into Alaska. Um, so the preparation took about a year, year and a bit, and that was thinking about uh, how much food we were going to need um, and actually putting the food or separating the food and put it into these big canoe barrels that you paddle with you, which is quite common for long-distance expeditions in, in canoes. You have these big blue bear-proof barrels. And they have various food within each barrel and uh, equipment within each barrel. So we had to work out exactly what was um, what was going to be what, what was going to be in each barrel, how we were going to post it. Um, also then thinking about uh, getting everybody involved, getting them into the country, out of the country, because two of them were from Canada. Um, also, we had no money to um, pay any of these people. So the other three people didn't get paid either. I kind of had to use my enthusiasm and passion for the story to kind of sell that to them. And one of the guys, the photographer, who is um, pretty well-renowned photographer, and he's even more more well-renowned now, an amazing guy, he... Um, I'd, I'd, I'd been following him for a few years. So for me to bring him on board was really tough. So I, I said, could he fly in at certain points and capture the story? Because I had no magazine deal at anything at this point. There was, there was nothing. I just wanted some pictures of the trip and he was a photographer that I admired for years. And 
he said, look, it's, it's, it's too expensive for me to come into Alaska or fly into Alaska at certain points of the trip. How about I just come along for the whole journey uh, and work with you on the narrative and the story and the imagery, and then we'll see what we can do afterwards. So that was that was mind-blowing to have him. But um, I, I hadn't had a huge amount of experience canoeing at that point, so I did. I paddled a couple of UK rivers and water systems. Um, and then, yeah, we, we went over there and – purchased the canoe so i pre-purchased the canoes before we went over um pre-purchased a lot of equipment um so where we were flying we, we actually got to the point uh probably two or three days into the actual from the source of the river picked up all the equipment and then we flew into the source on one of those tiny little float planes that then just dropped us off and then we continued to paddle the whole distance. So, I mean, there was a huge amount of preparation, but um, that can only get you so far. You know, once you're actually on the river or the lake systems, which the Yukon is at the beginning, um, you just have to kind of just roll with it really and be super flexible and be mindful of conditions. Um, but yeah, it, it, we had some creative uh, preparation. So the filmmaker and get, you know, get an idea of what we wanted to film the, from the photography standpoint, what I was going to write about, um but other than that yeah a lot of it was just adapting to the trip as as and when it happened mm-hmm. and you say you kind of work in this space with with people pushing to their limits and yourself were there kind of any fears you had before going on this adventure and if so how did you overcome them i think the fears were um probably being out of my depth in from a canoeing sense because it's a very 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 fast river and there's some big lake systems that people have died on in, in quite a few circumstances so yeah those those were my fears um that we wouldn't get to the, the end that was a fear because i really wanted to do that and i really wanted everybody to be together um i guess i was concerned about the human relationships of how people would get on for that period of time considering none of us had ever met um yeah, there's there's a few little small things, but you you mitigate that with just good preparation, um, good communication, good preparation, um, and then when you're on the trips, you you know you you try your best to keep that preparate or that good communication going, which at times was really hard because you've got people and you've got um, slightly different outcomes and expectations, um, different personality types, so those can kind of things can be quite challenging. But ultimately, if you're all on the same page in 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 terms of right, we're, we're going to get to the end and we want to do this together and create a body of work together and a, and a great memory and a great trip together, then you can kind of overcome those overcome those things. Yeah, I, I can relate to, uh, I, I did a trip, uh, we planned a motorcycle trip and uh, from north of Vietnam to south of Vietnam, from Ho- Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City. And I remember looking at the itinerary and I said, my friend was planning, I'm like, there's no way we're going to make this uh, amount of motorcycling <laughs> we need to do every day. And I know the feeling of making, we made it halfway to the country to Hoi An and we had to sell our motorbikes and fly the rest of the way. So I know what the feeling is like when you when you don't finish all the way. Um, but it, I, what was the, the, the day-to-day like when you guys were on the canoe? Uh, what, what, what did it look like? So the, the, you get into like a, I mean, you might have felt the same when you was actually on your mm-hmm. motorcycle trip, you, but you, you get into like a rhythm um, and that rhythm is all down to routine. Um, and you probably wake up roughly around the same time. You uh, have people that probably make breakfast and do certain things. The the canoes were in a certain position because we, we had to sleep on, islands pretty much for most of the trip because the grizzly bears patrol the side of the river um and where the 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 river is freezes over in winter um it kind of carves these islands that are there's thousands of them down on the river they're every kind of like six seven eight miles or something like that um and these these islands have big sandy beaches and then little mini forests at the back so you'd get you'd 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 wake up you'd you'd have your breakfast you'd pretty much all the time morning afternoon and evening we would have fires so we got into the habit of actually being pretty good at starting fires even in like quite terrible conditions um we would only use the gas stoves when it was really heavy rain and that kind of stuff so it was fires three times a day mm-hmm. um and then you'd kind of like paddle um till uh probably two o'clock, 12, two o'clock, something like that. But you'd keep the canoes together at all times, you know, and try and try and um, paddle together as much as you can. Um, 
And then in the evenings, it would be the reverse. You would just paddle to a certain time. You'd then, the next island that you come to, if it was suitable enough um, and there was enough driftwood there that we could make fires, you'd just put the canoes the food and the fire at the kind of front of the island and then you'd put your tents way back um towards the back because if if any grizzly bears swim across the river or any moose come across the river they'd be drawn to the canoes and the food and everything they wouldn't be drawn to your tents if um so the only kind of things we would have in our tents would be uh, just your sleeping bag your sleeping mat a book maybe a pen and paper that kind of thing um yeah and you do that we did that for kind of I think it was like 68 days we were paddling. And then in between that, every week or so, we would probably be, we would arrive into a native community um, and then introduce ourselves respectfully to the chief or any people that are in that community um, and let them know what we were there for, what we were kind of the story that we were telling. Um, And then we would sometimes sleep on the floor of a church or on the floor of someone's house or um, under these kind of little recreational areas that are beside the river that some of the little native children play in um yeah but most of it was on these islands in the middle of the river um Mm -hmm. every every night Mm -hmm. and what was your reception by some of these native people there were they uh excited to take part in your project and and open up to you or or what was the reception like and 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 what were those experiences like yeah most of the experiences were were amazing like Mm -hmm. really very welcoming very interested very sort of inclusive and wanting to help us um and the funny thing was is that they they would call us river rats um and they would know that from community like from community to community which are sometimes 30 40 50 miles apart they would communicate and they you so they knew of your arrival before before that you were coming so i think if if you were troublesome or a, or a, as we say in england a pain in the ass they would they would be expecting that but um what what we did was every time we had this kind of um system of myself and caroline who is the filmmaker we would go and see the chief or go and see someone who is in a position of um authority and just let them know why we were there where if there was anywhere we could camp respectfully to to the community um the story we were kind of there to tell and if if there was anybody that we could talk to interview photograph or anything like that um that feels they had something positive to share or something interesting or something about the traditions or culture or how things are changing and etc um to to let let us know but i mean there were times when we had to be quite careful with that because on previous years journalists and stuff like that had come into the community like we had by a canoe and um promised that they were going to recontact them in a year and show them the film and, and they would spend hours sometimes days with some of these native communities and that would be the last they heard of them so we would actually have to go in there and um, uh, just let them know that we're there for the right reasons and we wanted to build rapport and, um, and, 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 and just be open to communicating with them. But nine times out of ten, it was like really incredible sort of reception that we had. And some of the help that we received was just unbelievable. People giving us food and give, giving us food to take with us, inviting us into their homes um taking us fishing taking us out on boats to teach us about their connection to the river and fishing and everything like that so they didn't have to do that and 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 they did and it was it really transformed the trip for us Mm. it was incredible yeah Mm. are there any specific examples that kind of stand out for you that maybe your kind of mind was blown um where you saw something completely you know uh, different or you viewed something completely different during these encounters yeah there there was there was two people that really really stick in my mind and there were people that I wrote to afterwards when we got home and we'd finished everything I wrote to them and sent some pictures that um that we had to say thank you and everything like that and one of them was a lady called Julie who was um she was incredible and she was just teaching us about the animals and when the animals come and go and the connection to the wildlife that the native people still have. And then she was talking about mining and some of the mining that's impacting the water quality and et cetera, et cetera, in in some of these communities. And she was teaching us these tiny, tiny outdoor clues and signs to recognize in the area that when certain animals would arrive and all of those kind of things. And she had, she was like an earth mother, like a very spiritual woman. And she was just, um, somebody that stood out to me. Um, but I think one of the other people that really stood out was a guy called Walter. Um, and he was a native guy and he had grown up in this one community and he met us on this little beach that we paddled up to. And he came down on a quad and introduced himself. And then he became our friend for like two or three days. And he had an incredible story of, he had, um, 
issues with drink. And then he went into, um, he flew from, he moved from his native community into Fairbanks. I think it was, he flew into Fairbanks and I think he went to school there or got a job there and he had, um, I think alcohol and some issues with substances and that kind of stuff. And he kind of, to get himself out of that situation, he flew back into his community um, to help out again and, and remove himself from that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he, he took us to his smoke houses where they smoke all of the salmon. And he, he told us all, all about his life and was very open and very vulnerable about his lifestyle and um, how he's changed and how he's trying to help people in the community and build up certain traditions with to do with the fish and the salmon and smoking. And um, yeah, he was just an incredible guy and so friendly and so open and so warm. And I'd, yeah, you remember stuff like that. And that's one of the big takeaways from that trip was the generous generosity of, of some of the native people that we met in the communities. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to kind of storytelling, did this kind of keep molding as you went along or, or what's your process like when it comes to storytelling? Um, yeah, I think you, you have like a, you have a narrative before you go, you have an idea of what it's potentially what it's going to be like. And then you have um, some key pointers of some of the things you really want to work on and some of the questions that you want to ask or subject matters that you want to approach. Um, but sometimes that shifts when actually on these trips, sometimes it does shift. Uh, I think you, you've got to stay flexible with it when it comes to the story. You've got to have that key thread, but you just stay flexible. And if anything comes up, you can film that and talk to people about a certain subject. But um, you kind of have that uh, um, nucleus of an idea and you can kind of just work within that um, and try not to try not to like kind of poo poo anything. If anyone wants to talk about something or something comes up, you can just sit there and talk about it. And um, the, the key idea of that trip was to talk about the people's connection to the river and what the river meant to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that, that we came up that every interview and every conversation that we had was, you know, what does the river mean to you? Da, 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 da. what's changing what's 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 been in, what's improving so yeah it was that was always there but if we had other conversations which we did about music and about traditions and heritage and about my life that they were asking questions about us like why why do you want to learn about us and why do you want to know about the connection to the river so you kind of have to be open to exploring lots of lots of different avenues um, that then once you get to the point of producing the piece whether it's written photographic or film there's lots of ways you know you, you can go in and, and one thing i find about all trips is that you go into it um with an idea but then you come out not only with a different idea but a different person yeah absolutely yeah i just i did a we did a podcast last week uh with the travel ride and i was just talking about the same thing how i feel whenever i do a long trip um, especially when I have experiences that are completely new and foreign and where I've pushed my boundaries, like that motorcycle trip in Vietnam that always stands out, um, that you come back with, you feel like you kind of shed a skin and you come back as a new person, mm. new perspective, new, new, new way of looking at things. Uh, like, I don't know, it's almost like you come back a brand new character than the, than the person you left behind. You're like, oh, that was such an obsolete version of myself. Now I have this new experience and new, new way of looking at, 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 the, at the, I guess, in my life, right? Mm. so um regarding these communities are they mostly kind of isolated and self-sustaining or are they kind of still connected towards uh still connected with kind of the rest of society and connected uh, via social media and internet yeah yeah they're, they're kind of westernized as far as internet goes and all of that kind of stuff they have some of them a majority of them don't have roads because they're just in far kind of northwest alaska um but they have all have airports these mini mini airports and the mail and medical supplies and stuff gets flown in and flown out which is incredibly expensive um but yeah they they they're the, the job situation there, I think, is pretty tough and life is pretty tough there. And it's quite difficult for me to sort of comment on it um, in depth because I was only there for a few amount of, a certain amount of days. And it's a much more complex story and issue that, that goes far beyond my sort of opinions and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah, what I found is that it was some of the, the some of the people that we met are some of the kindest and nicest and most generous and open people. That they can meet. And, and I think what means a lot to, to them and to us is the, is the, the act of sharing. 
uh, and share. And that's one thing I took away from all of these trips is generosity and sharing um, to people and, and obviously giving your time. They gave so much time to us. So they shared so much with us, um, not only food, but knowledge, wisdom, care. Um, so yeah, it's their, their life is hard there, especially in winter. I mean, in the Yukon, it goes down to minus 50. So life is very, very, very tough. Um, mm-hmm. and the opportunities are limited, but they're very close knit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Relating kind of back to my Vietnam motorcycle uh, trip as well. I remember one of the biggest takeaways I had from that trip was when we were riding these motorcycles, which we thought were Hondas, but were actually <laughs> fake cheap motor Chinese motorcycles that were breaking down and, you know, squirting gasoline everywhere. And we just, they'd break down along the road and we were in the middle of nowhere and these Vietnamese <clears throat> repair shops would like, for example, fix our tire and they could have charged us anything. They could have, I mean, we had nowhere to, to go. I mean, there's no one in sight. There was no Uber to call. You're little, in the middle of nowhere. And yet, you know, they seemed like a fair price. Uh, fixed our fixed all our motorcycles, really excited to meet us. And comparing that to the experiences you, you have in like the big cities, like, you know, Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi, um, you know, you're, you're kind of viewed as, as a dollar sign. And I think it's just because when you have these big cities, you have all these people fighting for these limited resources of, of mm-hmm. money. And so that kind of takes away this human aspect of it. Like when you're describing these people in the communities, they, there's, they, they, there's so much generosity and sharing. And I feel that's such a key element of our human nature until we were kind of put into these big cities to fight for these resources where we kind of start losing that. So it's, 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 it's positive and optimistic to hear these stories uh, that you were mentioning. Were there any other values that you noticed that were very different from, let's say, your own that kind of really stood out? Any values? Mm. Like, for example, one thing you mentioned was their deep connection and the importance of of rivers and nature. Is there anything else that kind of stood out to you that you noticed, like, that kind of, I don't know, maybe made an impression on you? Yeah, I would say say reinforced is a good word. Reinforced and stood out was the the importance of what nature means to people i think and how important it is to protect what 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 is there um and one of the things that i had read briefly before going on the trip and then understood to some detail afterwards was the fact that those um the the, the indigenous communities are historically so connected to the landscape in such so many more ways than um, wildlife and um, you know there's there's there, there were so many things that we spoke about with people about you know in especially in as one example in Greenland when I was there you know there was there wasn't many words for hunting it was more it was more of a harvest you go to harvest uh, animals from the on the wildlife so you were harvest in a respectful way uh, and therefore it comes back the, the following year and you don't take the animals the actual animals give themselves to you um, so I think there was this beautiful sort of important connection that i learned about and that was reinforced by going on these trips about how how we should protect what we have how important nature is to not only our physical being but our mental health um and and the health of 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 the planet to protect protect these places but there was there was a lot of pain that we we heard about um and spoke about because the the king salmon that are actually in the yukon river the, the the sizes of the salmon the quality of the salmon um are are in decline um because of that's because of sort of various factors but one of them is overfishing out at, in the bering sea and out the mouth of the river so certain fish can't um make it all the way up the river into the spawning grounds so therefore the the wildlife fishing game are kind of monitoring and slowing down the the access to the fish on the river saying that you can take this fish you can't take this fish when historically obviously the indigenous communities would take what they needed um, and never more than what they needed so now there's a restriction on that so there was there's there's this kind of awareness that uh in in i found it even being in the uk or or going on trips abroad is that we kind of we go into nature for a purpose we go in for recreation we go in for sort of like connection and we go to push ourselves and we go to we go into it for for a reason whereas i think the indigenous view is we are part of it. It is a sort of all encompassing, all one. We don't go into it for a reason. Um, and that, that view completely like shifted now sort of when I, I love woodlands and I love forests. So now I'm kind of looking at the grander scale of what the forest ecosystem is. 
and what it means rather than going into it for a hike or a walk or a camp or something like that. Um, it just speaking to these people and hearing these views and looking at the greater sort of um, uh, field of connection, these trips, that's what it, that's what it really brings home. And like you said, it, it, it changes, you ch- you change as a person, your, 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 um, your consciousness expands mm-hmm. and you're not thinking about where you live and just around where you live or your country. You're thinking more on a global scale. Yeah. I've personally, after the pandemic, I've always enjoyed going on hikes and being outdoors, but I don't think I've ever felt such a longing for or a necessity to be out in nature until the pandemic happened. And mm. uh, I really am aware of that nowadays when, you know, whether I go hiking in the mountains or I was just recently in the seaside in the Baltic Sea, I was actually jumping in, in the the frigid waters uh it's it's you feel this energy that kind of recharges you um and it kind of yeah it, I, I feel like this kind of recharge every time i'm in nature and, and you you what were some of the or what are some of the kind of differences or recommend i say benefits of doing a longer expedition trip versus just going like on a weekend camping trip were there anything that you noticed that was kind of like significantly valuable by doing a longer expedition Mm, yeah that's a good question um i think when you do a a shorter trip it's more of like a short sharp dose of nature and um it it the longer expeditions i found myself remembering memories that i hadn't thought of in 20 years Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're paddling for eight hours a day there is not a huge amount (laughs) to think about when you're paddling down that river i mean you're seeing the wildlife you're seeing you may see another couple of canoeists and you can the the girl that i was paddling with she was french canadian so she'll teach me french but there's there's only so much of that you can do so you do go into some you you your mind quietens so much when you do some of these bigger trips um even i would say even a week or something like that, or a couple of weeks. If you, if there was a trip like that, you'd have the same feeling of being much more connected to where you are, like the temperament of where you are. They're kind of like slowing down. I think a lot of us in cities, there's everything is so fast paced. There's this rhythm and rush, and there's the constant um, bombardment of phone messages, emails, expectations. But when you're out there, it's kind of like right today we have a goal to paddle thirty miles or forty miles. We need to wake up, we need to paddle, we need to eat lunch, we need to paddle, and then we're around the fire again in that evening. And that there's a beautiful simplicity to that. Um, and that simplicity, you, you, you learn to be happy with what you've got. You learn to be happy with this kind of simple goal every day of getting from A to B. And that was one thing I took away from these trips is when I came home, I, I, I walked into my room again or my house again, and I was like, holy shit, I don't need half of the stuff in this house. Or when I go camping now, I go, I, I think I don't need hardly anything. I'm out for three or four days. That's going to be a beautiful tonic, a beautiful dose of simplicity under in my tent, in the weather. You know, these that's what these trips teach you. They, they, they teach you simplicity and connection and slowing down. And I think when you slow down, you're, you're outside, you, the bubble bursts of this kind of western fast-paced culture that we live in and it allows things to just seep back in again and i think that the longer expeditions you you, you just it, it shifts you and it changes your the fabric of, of who you are um and that that's why you find a lot of people that do the big through hikes like pct at the continental divide trail they go on to the next one the next year or sometimes do it in reverse because they're always looking for the simplicity and the 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 a to b of each day and the and the lack of complication and the um the lack of having responsibility i think having all these crazy responsibilities and life of expectations yeah so there's always a part of me that wants to go back on the next trip the next three month trip to see what evolves from that 
Yeah, absolutely. Our last guest actually had done, yeah, all all three of those hiked the AT, PCT. Uh, he had done, done one four times back. He's got some record for doing, I think, four times back and forth. Oh, wow. And and he was kind of discussing that as well, the addictive nature of it. He had started a business and all these things, but he, he said that he got the most clarity out of those hikes. And then he realized that no matter how much money you had, that's exactly what he'd be doing. So he realized, decided to kind of downgrade on his, you know, working and, and corporate life. But regarding living uh in in nature i i had spent some time about half a year living on an island and working as a scuba diving instructor and one of the things mm-hmm. i noticed is also spending a significant amount of time is that it takes a couple of days but then i adjust to the sync and symmetry of, of nature like i'm waking up with the sunrise uh, mm-hmm. i'm very in tune with how the weather is i you know i'm watching the sunset go every down every sunset go down every night and I feel very connected um, to to nature, and you know, of course, scuba diving or with marine life. And so I, I feel like there's this shift that that, that that occurs as well, where I feel extremely connected. Um, and and it, and it's it's something that when you were mentioning how you look back on these times that they kind of st- stands out in your mind. That is one thing that kind of always stands out in my mind as well. Was this was this time period of, of living um, in, in on this island for so many months, and and and. Um, yeah, it's it's something that it's really hard to replicate when living in the city with, with the fast pace, and I always kind of daydream sometimes of of back to those t- that that time period. Um, re- regarding also some of your expeditions, were there any kind of uh, is there any kind of like advice or takeaways you would give for people who are, for example, living this fast paced lifestyle that would like to slow down or you know be spend more time in the outdoors? Yeah, I would, I would, I would say start locally first. Like try, try, you know, there's so many health benefits to just going for a simple walk, go in, especially in in a woodland and being in, near a woodland, or or if you can, not a lot of people have access to woodlands and green spaces. So finding a green space um, and hiking in it. Um, sorry, can you just repeat the question again? Yeah. So I was wondering, like, if someone, for example, is just kind of t- tied down, you know, living this fast-paced lifestyle, anything you'd recommend for them to uh, kind of become, take a step towards becoming more, you know, slowing down or getting more in tune with nature or seeing some of these benefits that you're getting from your trips to that they could also kind of implement? Yeah, I think I think the first thing that springs to mind is is camping. Mm. is spending a night out i think a, a, an adventure becomes an adventure when when like you can go for a hike a beautiful hike in an incredible woodland and get and receive the the amazing benefits of that i think walking while being silent is a real interesting thing um listening to uh the the bird song listening to the wind in the trees observing slowing down not trying to rush through the route but i think a one or two day trip is really special because you're you get to feel what the actual elements are like and how the elements influence what you do and that kind of thing and how elements fluctuate, especially like wind and rain and all those kind of things. When you're out in um, and you go and you stay under in a tent, be it on a campsite or be it anywhere, you get to see how small we are because of the elements um, and how small you feel and how much respect that you get for the elements by spending a night out and then actually waking up if possible with the sun and then or moving from one location to another, like A to B location, having like a 10K walk one day or a 15K and, and having that distance, moving from A to B with a camp in between. That's a that's a great way to to really get a sense of like achievement and moving through a landscape. I think that's a that's a real beautiful thing. But people you don't have to do that if people you know, there's companies out there that can help you achieve those kind of things and guide you through those experiences. But for the average person to get that, you know, you can just go on a lovely walk, I would say through a forest or a woodland mm-hmm. for an afternoon and just sit there and have lunch in that woodland with a couple of friends. I mean, that's a that's a beautiful thing. Right, exactly. And I think you mentioned state parks and national parks earlier. I think that's also a great uh, resource that you don't have to go too far away. Hopefully you don't have to go too far away from uh, to kind of take advantage of as well. Um one thing I was kind of curious of uh, regarding your, your adventures, um, did you have any kind of close encounters, any kind of close calls, any near-death experiences during your, your, your time out there? Yeah, I mean, there's been, a, there's been a few things. You know, in Alaska, there's lots of, there was lots of grizzlies out there and you, you kind of, um, 
you're managing those experiences, bearing in mind you're in their environment, so you're respecting their environment and you have kind of procedures that you go through every night so you don't you don't have any problems with grizzlies. Um, we got charged by a moose one time on an island on on, on the Yukon. Uh, but one of the, I think one of the situations which I've probably come close to drowning was um, we were on the Mississippi, so we, myself and a friend had we had hiked across. We were following a an old Native American trail, which was the Trail of Tears, which is the Cher- the Cherokee were forced from the ancestral homelands in the in the um, eighteen hundred from the Great Smoky Mountains, <clears throat> and moved on foot or by boat into. Indian Territory, which is modern day sort of Oklahoma. And lots of uh, <clears throat> Cherokee people sadly died on that journey. There's quite a few thousand. Uh, and it was it was called the Trail of Tears because of the, the the excess deaths that happened on that, which was just terrible. So we decided to follow this route and share the story. And this was in 2019. So we we crossed the Great Smoky Mountains on foot and then we canoed the Tennessee River, which goes north um, in Kentucky and Alabama and Tennessee. And then it hits the Ohio River uh, in Kentucky. And then the Ohio meets the Mississippi. And then we we paddled down to Memphis and then um, walked on foot to Oklahoma. So it was, about, it was about 1,300 miles in total, all of those three sort of components. But one of the times on the Mississippi, so we were kind of in tornado season on the Mississippi. So... Um, there was lots of like volatile weather, lots of volatile winds, crazy storm systems. Uh, but one of the major problems was the actual the boat traffic on the Mississippi. So the Mississippi, I don't know if you've crossed it on a bridge or you've seen the Mississippi itself, but there's lots of these huge barges and they push these huge, huge metal containers all the way up the river. And um, each day that we when we got into the Mississippi, the, these huge containers which were pushing I don't know, 12 to 15 huge metal containers of cement and all various sort of um, resources up and down the river. They would create these huge wakes in the river. So being in a canoe in a huge wake is, is, is not, it's not the best thing. So whenever we see, would see one of these coming, we'd have to pull the canoe, pull the canoe over onto the side of the river, which was sometimes impossible. So we'd actually have to paddle into forests that were flooded and hold onto a tree. And then these huge wakes would come through and, and everything. So there was one day where there was a really bad weather front coming in and it was there was tornado threats and lightning sh- threats and all of these different things. So we pulled over at lunchtime and it was about two miles shy of our intended location, which we um, which was on the bend of a river, the big part of the Mississippi. And it was this kind of barge congregation point where they get refueled and um mechanics work on them and everything and the the the, the water was too dangerous for us to paddle on so we had pulled over we'd had lunch and then we were thinking at this place there's going to be warm there's going to be shelter there's going to be pizza there's going to be all of these things and we're sitting here in the mud on the side of the river in this kind of overgrown swampy area and we were kind of like if we can just paddle there's going to be a lot of rain there's going to be a lot of wind if we can just paddle and get there and just rough it for an hour or two it's going to be a lot better in the long run Mm. and this is the things that i find on some of these big expeditions there's moments of decision which you choose which are like pretty much make or break decisions you know like for a climber you make it you go for the summit when the weather window's tight or you know you you i don't know you you make these decisions in in challenging moments and this was one one of ours so we decided to paddle back out onto the river and because all of these, we were moving into this area where all these shipping containers and all of these barges were parked, they, they park them on the side of the river, or they they tie them to the bank on the side of on the side of the river. Now, because the Mississippi and the Ohio at this point were flooded, and this was in uh, late March, kind of early April. 2019 so that had lots of meltwater and rains in the the upper mississippi this had all washed down and it had flooded the whole of the mississippi so the banks of the mississippi were the water was in forests now so we were paddling through forests and which changed the nature of the river um which made it really really dangerous which we got told a bit later on that we were absolute lunatics to, to to paddle on the river but we had to do what we had to do so we made the decision to paddle out, but to save going out into the centre of the river where the, it was really rough and these barges were still moving up and down, we decided to paddle between the bank of the river and this huge line of barges, which were only 10 feet 
out from the bank. And there was this little tiny channel that we could paddle down safely um, right down the side of the bank. And we weren't being impacted by any swell or any danger or anything like that, which we, we thought at the time. So every four containers, there was a huge gap of maybe 100 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was eddies in these in these gaps. So an eddy, for those that don't know, is like a reversing section of water where water reverses on itself and it creates almost like a stagnant area of water where you can rest so kayakers paddlers all those kind of things can can rest in these areas which which usually appear on the sides of rivers and stuff so every couple of hundred meters we were stopping in these little um eddies and chilling watching this weather system that was coming in which was absolutely horrific it looked like a tornado um and we were thinking right we've got to just got to keep going and at this point the rain was just um, un, it was biblical amounts of rain so we were like we've just got to we've just got to get there so we kept paddling down this river and then we pulled into this another massive open section between these big sections of containers and then we got our cameras out to photograph this oncoming weather system which was yeah it was literally like a tornado but then when i looked up i realized that we we weren't actually in an eddy it was actually still part of the current of this really strong current of of the mississippi so at this point the Ohio and the Mississippi's converge, so you, and it's on a bend. So you imagine you've got two super powerful bodies of water that are converging on a bend, where the water gets sped up. So the fastest parts of rivers are usually on the bends, the, the outside bends. And we, the, our canoe was going sideways under the front of one of these containers. So the, the the containers are actually angled, so they make them more dynamic through the water, and the current was getting sucked down under these containers so we we both sprung into action um and started paddling sideways which was actually side onto one of these containers and we nearly got sucked down under it and then as we turned left just past one of these containers a barge was heading straight for us like head on so we made a couple of i made a couple of maneuvers in the in the canoe which because i was in the rear and we just got shot down the side of this container and the barge breakneck speed and then we shot out the back and we turned i turned the canoe and the canoe just went into this little forested area and we just the canoe came to a halt in this little forested sort of spot and the water was filling up the canoe from the rain and we were just sitting there and the rain was just coming down and we were like (laughs) we were like literally seconds or or a meter from drowning at that point because once you get sucked under these containers if they're like it's like a if you if you imagine a coke can in those crushing machines they mm-hmm. get twisted and rotated that big barges get sucked under these containers and 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 just ripped apart and trees get sucked under them and ripped apart so two men in a canoe would have been disintegrated so we 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 paddled down another 200 meters to get to the to the town and then um we went into this a small kind of um, industrial area where there was like a canteen and a cabin and we went in there and they're like, are you the two paddlers that were out there? And <laughs> apparently all the, all the barge, all the barge captains have been reporting on radios that these two Brits are out on a canoe in, in the stormy weather paddling between the containers. So we got a bit of a, we got a bit of a telling off by this one guy's father. And then in the end, we spent, spent the night there with the chap in, um, in his home and the guy bought pizza and, and then the next day we had to go back out of this port and back onto the main part of the river again, which was a super fast current. So we, yeah, it was a, it, it, it was a nerve wracking day and something happened later that day that was quite close to the mark as well. So we were both really jittery and, um, shooken up, sh- you know, shaken up by that. But I look back and you take the, you take the story away from that or the principles away from that when you think, is it really some of these times when you're making these decisions, is it really worth it? Is it really worth going when the risk is too high and, and so on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have any like, did your like laugh, life flash before your eyes or any like final thoughts before you saw this barge coming at you or no. just keep it cool? Yeah. I don't know if I believe people when people say stuff flashing between your eyes. All I remember, all I remember is everything was red, like the, it was purple because it was, do you know, when storms, you get storms that come over, everything goes dark and purple mm-hmm. and gray. I remember that. And I remember the intense rain and I remember the speed of the canoe getting shot between the barge and the container on the side of the bank. That's kind of all I remember. It's amazing actually, like thinking back how much instinct you use in moments like that, how, 
you don't you're not actually thinking you're using like your kind of chimpanzee part of your brain you know where you're just you're just acting purely on instinct mm-hmm. there's no conscious thought involved yeah and you had mentioned instinct earlier and that's kind of one <laughs> of the things um i was kind of curious about when it comes to instinct are you how are you acting on it? And for example, are there any kind of future expeditions you have based on um, your feelings or how, how do you utilize instinct? Maybe yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. That's a good question. Cause um, before I did the Yukon trip that I had a feeling that I was meant to be doing that trip. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is like, this is a right thing for me to be doing. This is the right thing to quit two jobs to be doing. You know, I'm, I've worked hard for many years and this is feels the right thing to be doing. And I think instinct is something that I've had to learn to be in touch with um, being in the military and, uh, and spending time out in nature, you kind of hone instinct um, in the military. You, you, you hone like this kind of like spatial awareness of where people are, um, how people are going to respond, um, all that kind of stuff. But spending a lot of time in nature, you do, you do hone an instinct for weather patterns when weather's are changing, um, when things go quiet, when things start happening again. You do you develop that, but I think that's that's like a basketball player in flow. You know, like they, uh, you know, they there's client when when sports sportsmen and athletes they call it the flow state when they act instinctively from that kind of limbic region of the brain, the chimpanzee part of the brain where they don't even consciously think about what they're doing. So on expeditions um instinct is a is a is a big thing and you as with anything the more you do the more you learn the more you kind of you can move in and out of that instinctual state um and be like yeah this feels good yeah this looks okay i think we can do that or um and also knowing when to move forward instinctually and also knowing when to not move forward instinctually Mm -hmm. like the story i just told you know (laughs) i wouldn't do that again (laughs) <laughs> we got out of that one luckily so my instinct is always to play on the, the safe side of things which is it's a good thing and a bad thing so yeah it's one thing you develop over time um but you also develop to trust sometimes how you feel about something which is very hard to do in today's world mm-hmm. and this whole story where you're talking about getting hit by a bar just relates so much and made me keep having flashbacks to my one of my near-death experiences also on this actually this vietnamese road trip and uh, it was raining and the roads in vietnam are absolutely crazy like there are no rules um Mm. there are cows crossing children's children running across the highways cars come from both sides and I remember there's a car coming that was going to, or actually a truck that was going to make a turn and then halfway through decided that it didn't want to make the turn anymore. So it was just like right in the middle of uh, the road. And I remember hitting the the brakes and kind of just fishtailing and just missing this train. Like I was like, it was, everything was in slow-mo. I was like, uh-oh, this is going to, I'm about to smash this truck and just missing it by inches. And I remember the adrenaline rush afterwards being like, wow, I almost died random and mm-hmm. some random who knows where I was in the middle of Vietnam, you know, never getting a chance to say goodbye to my family or friends. You just have no idea when that moment is. And wondering like, look, my initial reaction was like, I should just give this bike away, sell it and just fly back home. But um, yeah, I finally got in control of my senses and I was like, okay, everything's going to be okay. Just be, be more aware of what's going on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, when you're telling that story, I was having flashbacks, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and then when I came back, I'm like, yeah, I was lucky I got out of that one, um, and, and survived that because it could have been, uh, could have been brutal. Yeah. Um, they make good stories, but mm. you know, now they make good stories. But, <laughs> yeah, um, at the time you kind of, you're, you're, you stop and think, what the fuck am I doing? Like you, yeah. you, you, you reevaluate sort of certain decisions that you make but i think you know these are lessons that you you learn and these are lessons that i think you've got to go through and you you become like a you know a much more enlightened sort of aware person by having to go through this stuff and yeah yeah but, but that that moment actually showed me the randomness of life that actually i am not in control as much as i think i am you know that, that mm-hmm. i could randomly be taken out uh you know die and yet I never had a chance to say goodbye to everybody. And so it kind of made me think like maybe it would be smart to write letters of everything I want to summarize to people just in case, you know, if an accident ever happens again, I mean, you have no idea when your time to go 
is not to get super morbid, but that was, (laughs) that was the takeaway I had from that trip was like, you need to, you know, find a way to communicate to those people just in case some kind of event happens, some accident happens of, you know, your your final farewells. Um, But anyways, moving on to more positive (laughs) discussions. Um, how did photography kind of come into play in your life? Uh, I've seen some of your pictures and they're very beautiful and they really capture, you know, the, the landscape and the people you, ha- you have visited. How did that become a part of your life? Um, it pro- professionally uh, was kind of 2000, 2018 where I started money, making money from it when I kind of um, acknowledged that I had something to give and I enjoyed it and I pushed it and I wasn't a try to not be afraid of people critiquing it yeah 2016 but I'd kind of always had an eye for it creativity as something always that I I studied music and I studied sound engineering and stuff like that and um, I'd always love art and photography and but it was never I'd, I'd bought a DSLR in maybe 2012 something like that 2013 like a cheap very cheap dslr i didn't even know probably how to use it i was just taking pictures on on automated settings on there but i knew that i enjoyed it and i i had an eye for it but it was more of just a hobby it was it was something that i just like to do like i like to produce music or all those kind of things i like to have a channel for something that was in me like this little volcano of creativity that i had in me i I just didn't know how to channel it or even refine what that was so out of photography came from doing slightly bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger adventures and then thinking man you know like that trip was like this and i'd love to to be able to take a photo of this and each trip i thought i'm gonna just try and get this photo and get a nice a really cool picture of the tent on that mountain or do this or do that or take a picture of these people um and then the 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 yukon trip came around and the photographer on that trip obviously i spoke about later he was incredible photographer and he one day, it was probably the third or fourth day, he said to me, he goes, look, he goes, we're having a, a, a conversation about photography. And he was like, look, you've got something. Like, you've got to get off of your phone and get onto your DSLR and, and and you know, try and try and improve and try and do this and push forward. Because he goes, you've got the eye, you just need to work on this and you've got a long way to go, but there's, there's something there. That kind of little seed is there. And it was literally like someone, you know, flicked a switch. And it was like someone gave me permission and someone said, hey, you you know, you've got something, explore that. Because it's not something we hear every day that, hey, you're really good at that or you're good at that. You know, explore it and I'll be there to offer advice if, if you do. And, yeah, after when I got back off of that trip, his pictures were all over this magazine article that we had. And I was looking at them. I was like, man, I definitely think I could try and do something like that. So after that trip, I went, I set up some of my own trips that were kind of UK, Europe based. And I thought, right, I'm going to try and now tell the story of my trip via photography and writing. So writing was my first real medium. It's what I've always been most natural at. And yeah, and I kind of thought, right, okay, I want to, as with my writing, I want to put people in my shoes. I want people to see how wet this is, how hard this is, how, um, what the tent looks like, what the landscape looks like, who are the people, um, you know the grit, the, the the like the energy or the reality of of expeditions, which is most of the time it's like kind of tiredness and mm-hmm. um, difficulty and beauty okay. and everything interlaced with each other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was in, and I got a couple of lucky breaks with brands that I pushed for and pitched to and these kind of things and a couple of knockbacks where I learned a couple of things that went well, a couple of things that didn't. I learned and grew from both of those and. Now, um, I'm very lucky to be able to work with some brands and magazines from the adventure world where we, I can tell stories the way I, the way I like to. Mm-hmm. And when you uh, say you're, you're a writer, what kind of uh, pieces are you most, are you mostly writing for magazines or are you blogging or what kind of writing are you doing? Yeah, it's mostly for magazines. Um, I have done some, some blog work, but yeah, it's mostly for magazines, long form. So quite, quite a lot of word words, but I like to tell sort of longer stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I really flesh out the, 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 the bones of a trip or people that we meet or an experience that we've had. I really like to, to, to get down to the real raw sort of bones of it and put people in my shoes. Um, and for them to experience what I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. And what do you find is the best way to go about doing that do you have some kind of process are you for example continually writing during your experience or do you kind of summarize everything afterwards or what's your experience what's your process like 
Yeah. So on an expedition, I would normally journal for like 15, 20 minutes at the end of every day. So when you, when, when you've had dinner and a fire or whatever, and you go into your tent, as much as I don't want to, I, I, I do, I, I get my journal out. I write for 20 minutes with a pencil and it's just like thoughts, feelings, emotions, people, people's names, their smile, the food, how it tasted, the wind, how much, how cold that was. I just write down bullet points and these little stories. And because once you go three weeks, two weeks, two months, three months down the line, you're going to forget how that smelled. You're going to forget how that, um, how bad that felt or how good that felt. That person, how much generosity, their name, the name of the church that you were let into to sleep on the floor of. And all of these things, these tiny, tiny details, you forget them. So journaling for me is uh, the one of the key sort of um, it's the, the skeleton of the of the process and of the story. I then get home and then I flesh out, depending on how many words are in the piece, I flesh that out into a much longer form piece. But I usually start my pieces with one paragraph of a moment in time so like a story a moment in time so an example i for one piece if i was writing about that section of the canoe trip i would start with that near-death experience story so you're kind of drawing people right into the environment right into the moment um for one big paragraph and then you kind of almost like backtrack and start from the beginning and you almost lead up to that the rest of the piece almost leads up to that point Mm -hmm. um but i've only learned to write like that through lots of trial and error really and people moving paragraphs around for me and then I was like oh okay that's interesting way of doing it um also as well I I tend to overwrite so I tend to use too many adjectives so some really good advice from a writer that I know she was like okay you know only use one adjective don't use three make sentences short don't try and oversell or overtell a story or overtell a moment in time you know people can work it out you don't need to over explain so yeah there, there was lots of cool little uh, bits that over the years usually through feedback and criticism and stuff like that that you can refine and just and just become better mm-hmm. yeah that's it sounds kind of more like um like you have an exercise daily right when it comes better at being a writing so make sure you kind of uh capture and and even if you don't want to because i know it, it, there's moments exactly when i'm also on an adventure or a trip that i'm kind of either tired or i want to be in the moment but you know capturing that is, is such a great way to look back on it and really try to get that feeling because when i look back at some of my writing journals from back and you know trips it's 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 crazy to to, to look back on because it's for example, this landing, I remember in Southeast Asia, there's a, there's a, there's a feeling that you have when you land there, the, the, the air is moist, mm-hmm. there's a buzz, there's a smell. And, you know, it, it's not until I read it that I kind of remember what, what, what that was like and what it's like to get out of the airport and have, you know, chaos of motorbikes everywhere. Um, so that's really, um, that's really, I guess, really effective as a, as a writer, right? To, to write that and capture that every yeah. single day. Have you had a chance to read the art, sorry, the war of art? No, I haven't. No. Uh, it's a fantastic book. I was just reading it uh, by a writer called Stephen Press Pressenfield, Pressenfield, something like that. I highly recommend it. Uh, kind of talking about the um, necessity every day to write, even though he calls it the resistance, which is like uh, your mind trying to, to 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 tell you, "Oh, not today," or "You don't need to do it today." Um, yeah. But trying to that we all have this kind of a, a, you know little voice in our head that kind of tells us to you know take it easy today you don't need to or maybe a long day and, and kind of battling with it and just making sure that you you put those 15 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever you you decide on to do every day so yeah i highly recommend that book it's really good especially for for writers yeah um, check it out yeah um so kind of to conclude things uh what kind of what was the future holds for for ian finch what are the any kind of ideas you have for future expeditions or adventures yeah, so I've got one next week where um, myself and a friend are going to Sweden um, and we're spending like kind of two and a half weeks with uh, a, a kind of legendary dog musher. So mm-hmm. dog mushing is like dog sledding and, you know, someone who moves uses the dog teams to move across like the frozen landscapes in Greenland or Sweden or Alaska. But this guy's placed in Sweden, northern Sweden, and we're going to spend two weeks with him, living with him in his cabin and telling pretty much the story of his life and his connection to the dogs. So yeah, that's that's going. We're flying next week, and that'll be for two and a half weeks. Um, and then, so this year, I've kind of set aside this year has been the year of personal projects. So I'm mm. doing lots of lots of three or four real personal projects I want to do, um, and I'm just reaching out and 
you know, I'm not getting sponsored by too many people for this. It's like a lot of my own time, a lot of my own money unpaid to really reach into these kind of projects. So yeah, that that's one. And um, in August, we're flying to Ontario and we're doing a canoe trip, but we're going to talk about um, with biologists and wildlife specialists and some of the native people um, in Southern Ontario about moose and the declining populations of moose. And we're going to look into why that's happening in that area. So, but we're going to really look at the, the, the heart of the story is the moose and people's connection to it in, in sort of northern Minnesota and southern Ontario. So those are the main two trips of the year, and there's lots of smaller ones in between. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ian. I really appreciate you taking the time today, and good luck with the rest of your journeys, and stay safe. Watch out for the barges. <laughs> Cheers, man. <It's> good advice. <laughs> Cheers, Jordan. All right. Take care. Take care. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Travel Tribe Podcast. Join us each Tuesday as we release new episodes with great adventures. Until then, remember, the most dangerous thing you can do in life is to play it safe.